Oh, good evening. Why don't you uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke or Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. So uh, every sermon <clears throat> eventually ends. Sometimes, you know, seems like they won't end, but they do eventually. We're able to go home. And, uh, and the ending of a sermon is like the, the you know, and a good sermon has this like climactic ending that just brings home the message in a memorable kind of way. Well, uh, this passage here, uh, Matthew seven twenty four to 27, is the ending of the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is arguably the best, the most profound, the most magnificent sermon that has ever been preached. And now Jesus is coming to an end. And so this is the final word that people are going to hear. You know, this is the end of it. This is what they're going to remember. And so what a word it is. Matthew 7, starting at verse 24, Jesus winds down now and he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So let's, uh, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word as Josh said earlier. We thank you that your son came, and we thank you that we have these wonderful, marvelous words recorded for us so that now, over 2,000 years later, they still are meaningful and relevant and full of authority to us here tonight. And so, Father, I pray that as your word is brought and taught and as we think about it, that, that Father, we would not go away just thinking, oh, that was nice. But uh, we would contemplate our own lives and uh, what we are doing and not doing in the realm of Christ. And so uh, have our hearts open tonight to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And so uh, this passage here is really familiar to us, but don't let the familiarity of it uh, take away from the somber truths that Jesus is saying here, that Jesus kind of leaves hanging in the air. You know, we, uh, we like to divide people up into different categories. Oh, you know, census will put people uh, in categories of race or religion or economic status or marital status or, you know, a whole host of different things. And Jesus comes along and he makes it very simple for us. He says, you know, there's only two kinds of people. There's people that follow me and people that don't follow me. This is something that Jesus has been emphasizing throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He says, look, only two masters exist. Either you're going to follow God as your Lord and Master, or you're going to follow yourself as your own little L Lord and Master. He says, uh, there's only two ways to exist. Um, yeah, only two ways to exist. Either you're on that broad road to hell, or you're on that narrow road to heaven. There's no in-between. There's no third option. It's one of those two. And everyone's going to be on one of those two. 
We don't bounce back and forth between the two. Well, we do. When Christ saves us, we bounce over. But, you know, it's, it's not like one day we're going to hell and one day we're going to heaven. You know, it's one or the other. There's only two types of fruit that exist. There's either the good fruit that's pleasing to the Father or the bad fruit that reflects life apart from him. Last week we saw that uh, there's only two eternal destinies. The one where Jesus says, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the rest of your master, or depart from me, for I never knew you. And there's no third option. And so today, tonight, the ending of Matthew, again, is about two different types of people. There's the wise builder and there's the foolish builder. And every single one of us in this room and every single one of us in the world are either going to be one of those two. There's no middle ground. You're either wise or you're foolish, says Jesus. And so uh, most of this evening, I'd like to focus in on the wise builder. And that's verses 24 and 25. Everyone then who hears these words of mine. And so as Jesus is winding up the sermon here, in the very narrow sense, these words of mine are the Sermon of the Mount that he started in chapter 5. His audience is just not the crowd that's there who heard it for the first time, but he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine. And so um, um, the words of mine then, in the broader sense, are not just limited to the Sermon on the Mount, but it's the entire Scripture. It's the Old Testament that's already been written, and it's the New Testament that is going to be written in the future, you know, of course, in our past. Because Jesus says, everyone, he doesn't limit it. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or American or Korean or Ecuadorian or whatever. Everyone, everyone, this applies to everyone, no exceptions. This is true for everyone in the whole world. It's true for every single generation since Christ and every generation that will come. So that now, some 2,000 years later, Jesus' words are just as powerful, they're just as relevant, and they're just as awesome as when he first spoken. And what does he say? Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus says here that hearing his words are not enough. The first people who heard these words... We, we see uh, their reaction to it in verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And that's good. It's good to be astonished at Jesus. But you know what? Being astonished at Jesus is not enough. Hearing his words are not enough. Something else you'll learn about me besides uh, going to Black Sabbath concerts is that uh, I was in the Coast Guard. And uh, I was stationed in New York City for a while going to school to learn how to be a radar man. And that's what I was in the Coast Guard. Uh, I was a radar man. We had about a dozen guys in our class. You know, they, they had different classes that started like two or three months apart. And there's about a dozen guys in our class. And they made me the class leader simply because I'd been in the Coast Guard longer than anybody else in my class. So one day, uh, I was ordered to take my classmates to go to a, a building uh, there and clean a floor on this building. You know, clean out the rooms and all that to get it ready for some other people who are going to come in. 
Well, I went over there and I looked at the rooms and I looked at everything and it looked fine to me. And so I decided I'm not going to do it. You know what that's called? <laughs> Insubordination, you know? Let's just say the, uh, the aftermath of my insubordination was not a pleasant experience for me. A master chief in the Coast Guard really knows how to ream a guy up. Upside down, inside out, up and down in every single way you can think. A wise person follows orders. Every single one of us here have a job. You follow the orders of your boss. That's just the wise thing to do. And when the master of the universe tells us to do something or not to do something, the wise man, the wise woman will not only hear, but he or she will obey what they say. In Luke 6.46, Jesus asks this incredible question. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? I mean, that's just the height of foolishness. Only a fool disobeys his or her boss. Only a fool disobeys a master chief in the Coast Guard, and only a fool disobeys King Jesus' commands. And so he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And so obedience to what Christ says, Jesus says, is wisdom. The word rock here doesn't mean like a big boulder, but it means something like bedrock. That, uh, you know, bedrock is firm, bedrock is stable, bedrock is immovable. And so this wise builder, he just didn't slap up his house, you know, on the surface of the ground here, but he took pains to take out a shovel and dig down through the, through the conglomerate of the rock and everything until pow, pow, he hit bedrock, and then he started to build his house on that stable rock right there. The house is the person's life, and the rock are the words of mine that Jesus is speaking. Jesus is saying that everyone, without exception, are going to build their house, their lives, on one of two foundations. It's either going to be on the rock of God's word Jesus' words, or it's going to be on the shifting sand of human and worldly philosophies. It's going to be one or the other, it's, uh, and there's no third option. So the house that's built on the rock here is the one who hears Jesus' words, who hears the Word of God, that hears the Scriptures and obeys it. Years later, Jesus' half-brother James would write in James 1.22, he says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. People can claim that they love Jesus. People can claim, and maybe even really have, lots of spiritual experiences with Jesus. But that's not enough. Jesus says that's not enough. It's not enough to have those things. Our love for Christ is proven in our obedience to him. And that's it. There's nothing else that we have to judge on, uh, you know, of a person's love for Christ. It's not how well they sing. It's not what they do or anything else. But it's their obedience to him. Uh, my all-time favorite movie is Fiddler on the Roof. Do you guys know that movie? 
Okay, have you seen that movie? Have you seen it? Yeah, oh yeah, we were singing it this morning, weren't we? Yeah, okay, I'm going to do another song out of it. So yeah, it came up in Sunday school, or I brought it up in Sunday school, so here we go again. So if you don't know the movie, or just to be reminded, it's, it's a musical, and it's, it's in a movie that follows the trials and tribulations of a Russian family in Russia in the early 1900s when there was a lot of political turmoil coming along. Well, marriages back in those days were arranged, and, uh, and Tevya, the husband, first met his wife Golda on their wedding day. And uh, Tevya says, oh yeah, my father said that uh, we would learn to love each other. And so now it's 25 years later, and he's wondering, I wonder if Golda loves me. And so one of the most memorable songs of it has Tevya singing, and you know what? I hope I don't start singing it. I probably will, you know. He says, do you love me? And Golda says, do I what? He says, do you love me? And Golda says, do I love you? For 25 years, I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milk the cow. There I go. After 25 years, why talk about love right now? And Tevia says, ah, I know, I know all those things. But do you love me? Do I love him? For 25 years, I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. For 25 years, my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? And whoever wrote that song got it, I think. Love is loyalty in action. Love is not an emotion. An emotion can just change from one second to the next, from one year to the next, anything else like that. I mean, uh, you know, our emotions change based on our circumstances, and sometimes, you know, love will change. Love is not an emotion. Love is loyalty in action. It's steadfastness to another person. It's staying committed to that person regardless of the circumstances of life. And so loving Jesus and obeying him cannot be separated from obeying him. If you say that you love Jesus, then you will obey him. If you love, if you obey Jesus, then that is proof that you love him. Hearing his words and acting on them is wisdom, and it proves our love for him. I have a question. How did Jesus prove his love to the Father? How? Well, he tells us, John 14, 31. Jesus said this, but I do as the Father has commanded me. Why? Why did Jesus do what the Father commanded him? So that the world may know that I love the Father. Isn't that an amazing thing? I'm sure that Jesus had great emotional feelings for the Father, but even that was not enough for the Son of God. Not enough. He proved his love to his father because he obeyed his father. And let me just remind all of us, that obedience of Jesus eventually led him to the cross. The cross is Jesus' love for his father in action. And it's the same with us. I have several verses here. Uh, John 14, 15. This is Jesus speaking. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, 
He it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. John 15.10, Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Listen, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. How did Jesus prove his love to the Father? He kept his commandments. How did Jesus stay in the love of the Father? By keeping his commandments. And it's the same for us. 1 John 2, 4, and 5 says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Now a lot of people, even some Christians, see God's commands as stifling. You know, it's a joyless existence you people have that's built on drudgery. And I just look at them and think, really? Really? Is that true? Well, in one sense, yes, it is. His commandments become burdensome when they conflict with what I want to do, and I know that's not what God wants me to do. You know, if he says, do this, and I say, I want to do that, then his commands become burdensome to me, you know, uh, because I want to do something that I really want to do. So look, folks, God is not some cosmic killjoy. You know, he is not out there to kill our joy. He's not out there to rub the joy out of our lives. God's commands are not burdensome. I mean, what is so burdensome about trying to be kind to another person or gracious or patient or thinking the best of others or holiness or holding our tongues instead of engaging in gossip and slander? What's so burdensome about showing good to another person or loving another person and all the other things that God commands us to do. What's so burdensome about that? It's hard sometimes, you know, I admit, but it's not a burdensome thing. I mean, it's not like he's calling us to do something that's beyond our abilities to do through the Holy Spirit. The gospel liberates us from ourselves. It really does. And that old sin nature liberates us from ourselves and that old sin nature that leads only to death. God's commands leads us to life. God's commands are an invitation for us to follow him so that our lives will be good and pleasant and a joy as we rest in our Savior who died for us and who raised for us. And so, folks, look, the God who loved me enough to sacrifice his son so that I can be called a son of God, a child of God, or a daughter of God, if that's you, it's the same God, it's the same loving God who gives me his commands. Commands that both tell me what I should do and commands that tell me what I should not do. These are loving signposts from my loving Heavenly Father whose love for me is expressed in each command. That's why he gives them, because he loves me so that I might experience his joy and fullness forever. So God gives us his commands out of his love and out of his mercy and out of his grace to us. So, uh, yeah, I think everyone in here is a parent. And uh, when our boys were growing up, we would, you know, they would say, well, why do you tell us to do this? You know, why do you tell us not to do that? And we would tell them, 
um, you know, I think it's true about God as well, is that our commands to our children and God's commands to us are twofold or for two purposes. It's to protect us and to provide for us. And so God's commands protect us from ourselves, but also protects us from the enemy of our souls as well. And they also provide for us the very best life that we can have in this world. And when we step away from his word and when we go our own way, all of a sudden we are removed from his protection and we open up ourselves to the enemies of our souls, Satan and the world and even myself. And so the house that's built on the rock is wisdom, Jesus says. It's the life that does not rely on religious rituals, doesn't rely on ceremonies, doesn't rely on feelings or visions or religious experiences or self-righteousness or even miracles as we saw in last week's passage, but it rests on the Word of God and the Word of God alone and does what the Word says to do. And so look, Jesus is not talking about a works salvation here. Work salvation is, if I obey, then God will save me. No, no, that's backwards. Jesus is talking about, you know, the gospel here. The gospel opens my heart so that now I can obey him. And because I have the gospel, one of the natural things from that, one of the natural things, one of the desired things, one of the things that I really want to do now is to obey my heavenly Father. Obedience like that is an expression of the gospel working in my life. The salvation of the gospel leads to obedience. Nor is Jesus and the rest of the scripture talking about perfection. It's not talking about perfection at all. I've disobeyed some of God's commands this week, and so have you. Okay? I don't know what they were, but you have. Probably today, all of us have disobeyed some of his commands. So he's not talking about perfection here. But what he is talking about is that even in our disobedience, even if we disobey God and his commands, we're still going to obey him by repenting of those sins, confessing those sins, and making restitution to others if we need to. Uh, You know, if we stole something, we give it back. If we slandered someone, we ask their forgiveness. So the issue in the Christian life is never, ever, ever perfection. Never. But it's direction. You know, what characterizes my life in Christ? Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And look what happened. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Okay, so the rain, the wind, the floods, and all that, they come because a great storm has come against that house. Now, Jesus could be talking about, you know, what we would call the storms of life, Um, illnesses, financial setbacks, death of a loved one, things like that. Um, The wise are going to experience these storms, and Jesus says, when these storms happen, that that house is going to stand. It's not going to fall, okay, because of tragic circumstances. Jesus could be talking about these types of storms, but I don't think he is. 
I think he's talking about a far greater storm, a far greater storm that's going to happen to all of us, the ultimate storm that all of us that we're going to face. So look, back in uh, just the previous paragraph, Matthew 21 to 23, that we looked at last week, in verse 22, you know, he's saying, everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will, will uh, see, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. Now listen, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and all the rest? That little phrase, on that day, is like biblical shorthand to talk about the day of the Lord, the day of his coming, the day of final judgment, the day when Christ returns, and all the events thereof. And so I think that that little phrase, on that day, is carrying over into this paragraph, and that the storm that Jesus is talking about is not the storms that we face in this life, but it's the storm of the coming of the day of the Lord, the day when Jesus returns, the day when God beats out his storm on, uh, uh, on this world because of sin, the day that all of us will be judged before him. I was in the Coast Guard, and I experienced some pretty big storms, let me tell you. The biggest one was probably off the coast of Massachusetts, our little 375-foot ship, we were bobbing around with 40 to 60-foot waves hitting us. That was a big storm. We've had some pretty big storms here in Louisville from time to time, but we've not seen anything, nothing like the storm that is going to come in this world when Christ comes back and sets foot on us again. What Jesus is talking about here, this storm is the book of Zephaniah. Okay, So if you have your Bibles with you, why don't you turn back to Zephaniah chapter 1. I said in Sunday school this morning, because we looked at Zephaniah again, I think I've heard Zephaniah uh, talked about in the last three weeks in our church than what I have in the last 40 years of being a Christian in churches. Okay? Zephaniah. Zephaniah is a book about the day of the Lord. So Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 14. Let's start there. The great day of the Lord is near. And hastening fast. The sound, just listen to how he describes it. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. Those who think that they have oh so many riches, those who think that they have political power, those who think that they are masters of their own destiny, those who think that because they're the head of some corporation that, you know, they're going to defy God and stand before God, uh-uh. Those mighty men, they are going to realize just how small they are before the great and awesome God. The mighty man cries aloud. Listen to this, just pounding it home. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness a day of trumpet blast and the battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. God says, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like the dust and their flesh like dung. Folks, that's pretty bad. Neither shall their silver nor their gold be able to, save, to deliver them on that day of wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, 
All the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. This day is coming. We don't know when it's going to come. God knows. But it will happen. And if you remember just a couple weeks ago when Pastor Josh brought out, uh, uh, brought out when he preached on this passage a couple weeks ago, the horrors that are described by Zephaniah here do not have the final word. Let's go to Zephaniah chapter 2. Gather. Yes, gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation. What are we supposed to do? Before the decree happens, okay? Before this day happens, this is what we need to do. Before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, the Lord is giving an invitation here. He says, this day is coming, but do this before this day comes. Seek the Lord, verse 2. Seek the Lord. In New Testament terms, this is saying, believe the gospel. Seek Christ. Repent. Confess. Embrace Christ. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Do you see that? Believe the gospel and do his commands. Exactly what Jesus is telling us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Well, Jesus says, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. That's Zephaniah chapter one right there. Zephaniah two is this, but it did not fall because it had been built and founded on the rock. Our shelter in the day of fury that's coming is the gospel of Jesus Christ and our love for him, which is proven in our obedience to him. And so these first two verses here describe the wise builder, the last two verses, and the end of the Sermon on the Mount describe the foolish builder. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. Zephaniah chapter 1 has come. And it fell. It was great and great was the fall of it. You know, when we compare these two builders, they both heard the words of Jesus. They both did. They both heard the gospel. Maybe they both went to the same church. Maybe they both attended the same Sunday school class. Maybe they uh, both heard the same sermons. Both of them built houses, and they appear to be the same kind of house. I mean, it doesn't say that one house was stronger than the other. They both built the same house. Their lives could be very, very similar looking, kind men. Both, it seems, built their houses in the same general location. Both of them faced the same storm. And the only difference is the foundation on which the houses were built. We know the song, my hope is built on nothing less then Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. You know the chorus. 
On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. And this foolish man built his house on the sinking sand. It has no firm foundation. He doesn't want to do the hard work of digging down and finding that bedrock. He just kind of finds, oh, well, hey, this looks pretty good. And he builds his house, you know, on a place that should, uh, a house shouldn't be built because it's not stable. You know, he, uh, he loves a gospel. He loves that e- easy gospel that doesn't require anything of him. He's a microwave Christian. You know, he wants instant holiness. He wants instant forgiveness, instant results, instant pleasures, instant rewards that are uh, given, you know, in soundbite sermons. He likes God because God is out to make him a better him. Zephaniah has no part in his Bible. He's a superficial religious guy, superficial confessions, superficial repentance. He makes excuses for his sin. He blames others for his sin. He poo-poo's sin, doesn't think it's a big deal. He's not in love with God. He's in love with himself. And that's exactly what Jesus said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. There's only two masters. You're either going to serve God or yourself. And the foolish man is serving himself. And the storm comes on, in, on him as well. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Great was the fall of it. And that's how Jesus ends the sermon. Not on a high note. Not on a note to make us all feel better about ourselves. But with the somber warning of eternal destruction, eternal judgment, eternal damnation, hell is hanging in the air. One of my favorite passages in all scriptures, Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Why don't we turn there? Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. So uh, Isaiah 66 is the last chapter in a tremendous book of the Bible. So Isaiah 66, 1, thus says the Lord. So this is God himself speaking. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? You know, when we go home after a hard day of work, what do we do? We go home and go on the couch or our favorite chair and we kick up our feet on the ottoman or the coffee table and we just kind of stretch out. Well, it's as though God is stretching out here. (laughs) And what's his footstool? It's the earth. It's this big old earth. He just rests his feet on it. This is to show how great and awesome and mighty and incredible that our God is, how magnificent he is, how majestic he is. And Israel back in these days, they had the temple, and they had this absurd idea that this temple kind of contained the glory of God, you know, that that God was constrained there. And he says, you know, the, the earth is my footstool. How silly of you to think that this little building is going to contain me? Are you insane? 
Verse 2 says, all these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be. He created the earth as his footstool. God is so big and so majestic and so infinite, we simply cannot comprehend him. But look how this verse ends. All these things my hand has made, and all these things came to be. But this is the one to whom I will look. The great majestic God who doesn't need any of us. He says, you know what? This is the person that's going to grab my attention. This is the person that I'm going to look to. This is the person that uh, I'm going to see how they live. This is the person who piques my interest. But to this one I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, again in New Testament words, we would say those who have humbled themselves before Christ and received the gospel. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The one who takes God's word seriously. The one who would rather cut off his right arm than disobey God. The one who takes pains to obey God's word. God says, that's the person I'm going to pay attention to. And that's the person I'm going to love. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage of scripture. We thank you that you've given us your word. Help us, help us, Father, in the midst of busy days. Oh, so many things going on in the day. Help us to take that time to read and to study and to meditate on your word. Help us to filter your word, or better yet, to filter our lives through your word so that we will do what it says and not do what it tells us not to do. Father, help us all to be those wise builders and that we may enjoy the fruits of salvation forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.